This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Emma Shortus, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, join me to talk about the latest in US politics. Then, Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper, joined me to talk about Scott Morrison's leadership ambitions and, quote, how Scott Morrison played everyone. Then, Professor Brendan Wintle from the University of Melbourne and Director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub joined me in the studio to talk about Threatened Species and Threatened Species Day, which is coming up this Friday. And finally, historian Peter Cochran joined me to talk about his new book, Best We Forget, The War for White Australia, 1914-1918. to Yes, this is 3 RRFM. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and I will be here until noon with you. Um, there's four interviews today, so it's pretty packed and I'm really excited to speak uh, again with Emma Shortus, who is um, studying her PhD at uh, the University of Melbourne and she uh, is certainly um, an expert in US politics, has been covering it and looking at it from afar and up close and um, returned from Yale University from her uh, Fox Fellowship. So I'm really excited now to welcome you, Emma. Hi there. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back again. And um, really, it's just uh, a little bit overwhelming, as I said before, um, in terms of what's been going on in US politics, because it seems like every day there's about three developments and a lot of it can kind of catch you by surprise. Um, And there are a couple of developments which were quite uh, surprising and then perhaps not so not so surprising uh, recently, Paul Manafort, um, who is an important figure in the Trump election campaign, uh, was found guilty of eight counts of fraud and money laundering. And then we also saw that uh, Michael Cohen, who was Trump's personal attorney for many, many years, um, who we know has been involved in a range of um, payoffs, he he pled guilty, in fact, to... Um, to the so the sorry payoffs to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, and also intimated that it was at the direction and coordination of the candidate, which, of course, we know the candidate was uh, Donald Trump. So that was quite uh, that part. I think was surprising to many observers that he actually um, was willing to point the finger at Donald Trump. Um, what 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 are your thoughts, Emma, on that development? Yeah, look, I think particularly that this Cohen development is is really significant for Trump because, as you said, he's basically, he's pled guilty to these charges and he said quite clearly that he paid off these women um, at the direction of the candidate, so at the direction of, of Trump. And what that means, basically, is that those payments were made in order to influence the outcome of an election, which is illegal. And, and as you said, Cohen pointed the finger directly at Trump which is why Trump has lashed out um, so strongly against Cohen. And I think particularly with Cohen, there's a lot more to come. His back is up against the wall. That's why I think he's pled guilty. And his lawyer has been out doing a round to the media saying that that Cohen knows a lot about everything that Trump's done, which I think is, is probably accurate. He's Trump's personal lawyer for a long time. 
and that Cohen is willing to talk. He's willing to, to tell Muller and anyone who will listen everything he knows because he's looking at, I think, probably a lot of jail time and it seems like he's looking for a way out and Muller might provide him with a way out. He's already given a few other characters in this very complicated story immunity in order to um, get to the to the bottom of what's been going on. So I think... There's a lot more to come, and a lot more to come, especially for, from Colin, because we know, for example, that the FBI has raided his offices and they have this huge trove of documents and recordings that Colin made of his conversations with um, Trump, and, and we don't know yet what's to come out of that. So I think there's a lot to, to play out here still. Well, that's really interesting because um, obviously we're, I think a lot of people are waiting for the smoking gun, like the thing that really um, makes the evidence that makes it like fully conclusive, fully, um, you know, obvious that Donald Trump has some form of um, guilt. But I wonder, and and I'd love to know, you know, what are the repercussions if there is this smoking gun, if there is this fully conclusive evidence, can a president uh, be charged um, on criminal charges? And, uh, like, how do, how does that actually play out? Yeah, look, that, that's a really good question, and I guess I'd start by saying nobody's really sure. Um, and I, I guess the question of this, this smoking gun, there's, there's a few things going on there. If, if there is such a thing as a smoking gun in this case, and I, I'm not sure that there is, it might just be the kind of slow build of evidence that, that that snowballs against Trump. But even if there is a smoking gun, I'm not sure that that's going to kind of clear it up for everybody. I, I think a lot of people look at the Mueller investigation as this kind of inevitable march towards justice. And that, that may happen, but it also may not, given just how polarised um, US politics is at the moment, um, and especially the kind of media landscape where, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to, to get it the truth but if if we do for example get this smoking gun and, and people do real do decide that that trump is guilty then there's there's still a lot to play out because the department of justice has a norm in place where um sitting presidents won't be charged so basically you can't indict a sitting president you can after they leave the office of president so there's that norm in place so we don't know if the, if the department of justice would even proceed with with criminal charges and then even if they do, we're not sure what would happen. And that's where um, the question of the Supreme Court comes in because the likelihood is that if the, the Department of Justice did proceed with criminal charges, if the evidence was so overwhelming, that it would go all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's one of the reasons that Trump um, and his supporters care so much about appointing a conservative justice to the Supreme Court. Exactly. And let's talk about uh, Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, there's quite a lot of controversy around his views and the, the potential outcomes uh, if he's on the US Supreme Court bench. What are some of um, the views with which uh, it would make Kavanaugh a favoured candidate for Donald Trump, certainly in the situation where um, perhaps he does get into hot water yeah, so Kavanaugh is, is by all counts, a, a conservative, a conservative judge. He's a kind of darling of the, um, especially the evangelical supporters of Trump. And, and I think a lot of people have suggested that part of the reason 
those, um, I guess, that sort of sector of US politics tolerates Donald Trump despite his kind of repugnant behaviour in, in other areas is because they might get him the conservative um, justice onto the Supreme Court. So Kavanaugh is, has very conservative um, uh, position on um, Roe v. Wade, which is the um, judgment around women's right to access abortion. So that's um, really important, a kind of ideological crusade, particularly for evangelical Christians in the US. From Trump's perspective, Kavanaugh has also intimated before that he um, believes that sitting presidents shouldn't be charged, that the executive should be protected from those from charges while in office. So from Trump's perspective, I think that's why he's supportive of Kavanaugh. But it's also, as I said, really important for, um, for Trump's base, for the conservative base, to get this justice on the court because Kavanaugh would tip the balance of the Supreme Court to the conservative side. So you'd have... In a kind of pretty crude estimation, you'd have five conservative judges and four um, more liberal judges. So it would be huge and can potentially shape US politics for generations if he is appointed. Mm. And there is a Senate hearing being conducted this week um, with Brett Kavanaugh. What is that process and how likely is it that the Senate would try and block his appointment? Yeah, look, it's it's kind of a, um, I guess, an interrogation process where um, Kavanaugh goes before the Senate and he's asked questions by by sitting senators about his record, about the kinds of decisions that he would make. So it all it depends on numbers, basically, in the Senate. So they've got to get a majority to in order to get him appointed. And at the moment, it's, um, I mean, I guess I would suggest that it's likely that he will get appointed, but it's by no, by no means certain because there are a few senators um, who might waver and, and the role with the death of John McCain, it will depend on who replaces him um, and when. So, so the numbers could be tricky for Republicans, but I think they're on Republican side in terms of getting Kavanaugh appointed and they, they will do everything in their power to get that done. Mm. And um, you mentioned there, John McCain, there was some controversy around uh, the fact that Donald Trump didn't want to um, put the flag at half-mast, I believe, uh, for John McCain. Is What kind of, um, I guess, pettiness has been between those two men? Because it seems like um, when John McCain voted against Donald Trump's health care bill, that really uh rubbed him up the wrong way and which probably wasn't the first time either um but there certainly seems to be you know this kind of um sadly uh this negative reaction and response even in death to john mccain yeah yeah you're absolutely right that that trump has has responded with some kind of extreme pettiness to mccain and they the two have a long history most famously because trump said that basically that john mccain wasn't a war hero. He, he said he prefers heroes who don't get captured, which, particularly in the US context, is um, is is pretty outrageous. Mm. I think sometimes we don't appreciate it, appreciate how exalted the US military is. So even for Trump in the in the American context, that was that was pretty shocking. As was, as you say, his decision not to have the flag at half mast. Um, he he put it all the way up, and then it, the flag came down again, and it, it kind of just makes Trump look ridiculous I think from our perspective um and the funeral was kind of an indictment of Trump there was people who spoke said a lot of spent a lot of time talking about McCain's heroism his patriotism and in often very deliberate um contrast to Trump especially McCain's daughter um referred not to Trump by name but Mm. was really referring to him and and 
the kind of bipartisan consensus, the fact that Obama, both Obama and um, George Bush Jr. gave eulogies, was it was a pretty stark contrast, I think, to Trump. While you know he was quite literally off playing golf um, and and tweeting about Fox News, so yeah, it was it was quite an interesting spectacle. Yes, she said. Um, McCain's daughter said, "America has always been great," um, which is a really big jibe, um, which to and against uh, Trump's rhetoric around "Make America Great Again." Uh, p- obviously, presuming that America wasn't great at some point. Uh, I want to also ask about uh, the Department of Justice, which you referenced earlier there in terms of, um, you know, charges being laid. Uh, Donald Trump is very unhappy with Jeff Sessions, the uh, Attorney General who heads up the Department of Justice once again um, and said that, uh, well, he tweeted actually, unfortunately, it's all about tweets, isn't it, um, that uh, that he was very unhappy with Sessions and that, that he could actually, his decision to um, prosecute and pursue two Republican um, lawmakers may jeopardise uh, the Republicans' chance of holding on to their seats in the upcoming midterm elections. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, this Development and also why the midterm elections are so critical for uh, the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of uh, influencing Donald Trump and his power. Yeah, sure. So, so Trump is referring with uh, with his tweets about Sessions. He's referring to two congressmen, one in New York and one in California, who've been charged with crimes. So, one for um, campaign finance violations. He basically was was using campaign money to go on holidays and things like that. And another in New York who's been indicted for insider trading. So, the Department of Justice is, is pursuing um, charges against these two two congressmen, and it will absolutely jeopardise their chances. I think one of the one of them, the Californian, has decided not to stand. Um, so that's what Trump is referring to specifically, and he's he's been angry with Jeff Sessions for a long time, um, going back to 2017 when Jeff Sessions recused himself from the, the Russia investigation, so he's basically stepped aside from that investigation. He's not involved, and that has infuriated Trump. So with those tweets um, just over the last couple of days about Sessions, Trump has kind of intimated that he might even fire Jeff Sessions after the midterm elections, depending on what happens. And, and the reason he's so concerned about the midterm elections is because, um, and particularly these, these congressmen who may not be re-elected, is because these midterms, which, which happen in the first week of November, um, could be really crucial for Trump because there is a, a fairly um, decent prospect. I mean, a lot, a lot can happen between now and then, and I, I wouldn't want to make predictions, but there is a prospect of Democrats retaking the House, at least, which could have huge implications for Trump um, and these investigations because Democrats being back in the majority would allow them to do things like hold hearings, to subpoena documents, to subpoena people to testify. And it also, in in the kind of extreme case, if they have a majority, could mean that they table articles of impeachment and pass impeachment in the House of Representatives, which is a huge step. So that's basically the first step in the impeachment process, which, if it gets through the lower house and then goes to the Senate, could mean that the president is, goes on trial to be impeached. So the midterms can could have absolutely enormous repercussions for Trump and, and America generally. Mm. And uh, they are coming up, as um, we were discussing, in November. So that's something that, you know, is really close and coming up, uh, something to keep an eye on. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it is both very soon, um, but also a world away. You know, who who knows what could happen in the next kind of two months. Exactly. Well, in Australian politics, as we know, um, a day is very short. So, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and Emma, there's a, a couple of things that have developed in the Asia Pacific region in terms of America. Um, first up is that uh, Donald Trump is really apparently waging a, a trade war with uh, China and imposing tariffs on Chinese imports to America. And um, he's kind of considering further tariffs uh, to the amount of about $200 billion. So, um, you know, uh, and the hit, that's not just, I guess, the only trade war uh, Donald Trump is waging. He certainly implied that uh, a range of other countries and regions such as um, the EU have also been taking America for a ride and uh, and he's really um, pushing back and, and creating, I guess, this economic populism uh, around trade that is... I guess, seeking to restore some form of um, industrialisation of the American economy again. Uh, Then we've also seen a development whereby Donald Trump has said he is not coming uh, to the summits of ASEAN and APEC and will not be visiting Australia as he had planned. And I'm sure um, there'll be many Australians really disappointed um, with that development. Uh, he's sending Mike Pence presumably in his place, and uh, but it's okay. We've got Steve Bannon coming to visit in November, so I'm sure that will be uh, a welcome replacement. But in terms of um, that kind of snub of the Asia-Pacific region and this kind of multilateral summits, do you think that Donald Trump thinks these kind of things are a bit of a waste of time because he's just so unilateral in his decision making and policy making? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I mean, and just as you said, we've seen Trump kind of um, ramping up his rhetoric around these multilateral deals over the last week or so. So he even he even threatened to withdraw from the World Trade Organization, which while I don't think it would happen, I think we have to take these threats that he makes seriously because it's it's hard to predict which ones he's going to follow through on and which one he which ones he isn't. But I, I look, I absolutely agree that Trump's not particularly interested in in multilateral forums like APEC and um, ASEAN for for a few reasons. One of them being that they they don't allow him to shine, and and also that these kind of multilateral negotiations are difficult and they're complicated. And Trump. You know, he he builds himself as this kind of phenomenal negotiator, but really he prefers, I think, to deal with kind of one-on-one autocrats like Vladimir Putin or um, the North Koreans because it's it's kind of simpler when you're dealing with someone who who basically has ultimate power. Negotiations are easier. You can just deal with one person. So he's not interested in these multilateral forums. But also I think dismissing them and not turning up to them is is a pretty easy political win for him and his base because, as you said, he engages in this kind of economic nationalism. So shunning these forums allows him to say to his base, look, you know, I'm standing up for, for America and America's economy trade wars are good and they are easy to win, as he's kind of famously said. But the repercussions of this are, are, can, are potentially pretty enormous. Um, the, the, the trade war that he, or the so-called trade war that he's waging with China, as, as you were just mentioning, is having economic repercussions and, and some pretty bad ones for sectors of the American economy, um, not least agriculture. And, and the idea that Trump can kind of unilaterally 
put in these tariffs without some kind of response from places like China and the European Union, which has has already responded, is 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 pretty ridiculous. And I think playing with fire, and that and that's where um, you know Trump's influence on on the global order potentially can have a real impact on us here in Australia. And and I guess just on that, on the Australian connection, I think it's it's not particularly surprising that Trump hasn't come has decided not to come to Australia. You know, there's there's not a lot for him here. We, Australian, the Australian government has made pretty clear that they're going to stand by the United States basically no matter what Trump does or says. So, you know, in terms of reinforcing the alliance, there's not a lot that he has to do there. Um, we've, we've basically showed him that we will continue to um, uphold this alliance and not push back, and so sending Mike Pence is is, is really enough. So as much as um, our new Prime Minister Scott Morrison might be disappointed, I don't think he should be like surprised. No, apparently they got along very well over the phone, though, when Scott Morrison made it a priority. Um, one of the first things he did as Prime Minister was call Donald Trump. Yeah, look, he did, and I mean that's not unusual with with Australian Prime Ministers. It's it's pretty it's common and, it, and it's also common for american presidents to make congratulatory um calls to our prime ministers we, we often have these kind of symbolic little moments but in terms of the actual alliance not much well i think basically nothing will change in the foreseeable future given given the signals that the australian government has been giving to given to the u.s i i think the alliance will, will continue on as it has which from for me, you know, in my own opinion, I think is is pretty worrying when you have somebody somebody so unpredictable in the White House, somebody who is prone to lash out, and is, is particularly prone to lash out in the area of foreign affairs when domestic things are not going well for him. Yeah, exactly, and it does remind me though that um, Malcolm Turnbull and Donald didn't necessarily get along that well so um it it, i don't think it'll make much of a difference to our country's relations as you say but uh it was interesting to see the different personalities um perhaps get along better than the kind of bluster of malcolm turnbull um but uh Emma, it's been really great speaking to you and I really value and appreciate um, just how much insight you've given us today and I hope we can um, get you in the studio in the future to talk more about all these developments which uh, continue. Yeah, look, I'd love to, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm sure there will be more developments. (laughs) There certainly will. Thank you so much. Three, triple, R. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. Now, um, I did say that we are really lucky to be speaking with Karen Middleton, who uh, is the Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday paper. And uh, you may know Karen, she has been in the Canberra Press Gallery for quite a while and uh, previously has worked for such broadcasters as SBS. So um, I'm really delighted to have with me Karen Middleton to talk about um, the article that uh, she has written that was published over the weekend on the front page of the Saturday paper. And it was called How Morrison Played Everyone. Thank you very much, Karen, for joining me. Thanks, Amy. It's excellent um, to have you. And I was really intrigued by that headline um, (laughs) because it's not the story that we were told and it's definitely not a picture that has been painted by 
uh, Scott Morrison or Josh Frydenberg and all the original original press gallery commentary was around how um, fabulous this was, that they had a leadership team that was untainted by their leadership spill spills, I should say plural, that had occurred, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that they really were um, loyal to Malcolm Turnbull throughout and uh, certainly appear to be very principled. How is uh, how is it that that narrative isn't actually the case? I mean, what you you say in the opening line that Scott Morrison planned his assault on the Liberal Party leadership for months, according to senior cabinet sources. So these are people that should be in the know, um, given how you know they're in a leadership role uh, within cabinet and within the party. What? Where did this kind of coup come from then? If it wasn't, um, obviously the Dutton forces had been assembling, that was something that was real, but um, really the picture that's been painted in your article is that they were also being played. Well, yeah, and I think what happens here is that um, there's uh, everyone's loyal until they're not. Everyone's loyal to the leader until such time as they make the decision formally to change sides. What happened in this case, I think, was uh, the Dutton, Peter Dutton and his supporters were angling and positioning, but I think in the background, Scott Morrison and his supporters were also preparing in the event that an opportunity came up. Now, you mentioned the issue of having clean hands, and that was very important to Scott Morrison. He has watched other leaders who've seized the leadership, who have um, then suffered because they lived by the sword and then they died by the sword. So it was important to him that he managed to take the leadership and not be seen to have done that. But... uh, he also had to be in a position to take it if the opportunity came up because in order to do that, you have to uh, not be the one that that, cha- that does the initial challenging. So he needed to be manoeuvring in the background and making sure that if, if there was a challenge mounted, uh, that he was in a position to come through the middle. And that's, I think, what happened. So that's why I think there are uh, senior Liberal figures saying... They believe he was preparing. Uh, I revealed in that article that he uh, that before the Longman by-election, the one there were a pair of by-elections recently in Queensland, they were actually being seen as a big test for Bill Shorten, and they were a big test for him, and he passed them. But there was also worry about what would happen in the Longman by-election for the coalition, and rightly so, as it turned out. And before that, Malcolm Turnbull, who was then the Prime Minister wanted to make a policy change to try and improve their chances in Longman. You you know, they've got the uh, promised corporate tax cuts, tax cuts for, for the very largest businesses, and there's been a lot of unhappiness about them going to the banks, given what's happening in the Banking Royal Commission. So he wanted to remove the banks from that, to, to remove the corporate tax cut from the very top layer, which would have basically just cut out the banks. And uh, the people who opposed him were Scott Morrison and Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, who in the end ended up supporting Peter Dutton. So it's just interesting that they made a case against removing those tax cuts. Uh, And then, of course, the Longman by-election went badly and things started to destabilise for Malcolm Turnbull from there. So the suggestion now is that... 
Peter Dutton's camp did the active destabilising, um, but when when it was so rocky that there was to be a challenge, and, and Malcolm Turnbull called that challenge on himself, the Morrison people were ready to pounce and managed to make sure that it ended up as a contest between Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison. Once, once Malcolm Turnbull was out of the race, Morrison could formally declare. Mm. And it's not that surprising that a person like Scott Morrison, who was treasurer, might hold leadership ambitions, given that we've seen many other past treasurers also have similar ambitions, such as Peter Costello, but obviously far less successful. Um, Scott Morrison, you know, he is also a conservative, um, although he was really in a relative sense appearing to be a moderate candidate it's really not the reality though i mean do you think that uh, there was some level of um coordination going on behind the scenes in terms of um immediately proceeding when turnbull uh called on that vote in terms of this the morrison camp uh, if you mean coordination with the Peter Dutton camp, no, I don't. Um, I, I think I think the people in the Morrison camp were ready with scenarios if if thing, you know, certain things were to happen, and one of those was if if Malcolm Turnbull decides to call on a, a snap leadership ballot, what will we do? Because there had been ructions over the weekend prior to that and suggestions that uh, there might be rumblings against Malcolm Turnbull. And then, uh, as I also revealed in that story, there was one Liberal backbench MP who had decided that he was going to stand up in the party room meeting that was scheduled for Tuesday and demand that Malcolm Turnbull resign. And it's amazing how frequently when these things happen down the years that there's one backbencher, sort of an outlier, who decides to do something that precipitates everything else. And Malcolm Turnbull got wind of this and decided that he was just going to call on a vote on the spot to avoid that happening and creating more unhappiness and to try and blindside Peter Dutton, who was the only candidate he knew about at that point. Um, and it's a good idea and it, it, it could have worked, except that he, he, didn't, he didn't anticipate Peter Dutton getting such a high vote in that first ballot. And in fact, not, nobody really did, including Peter Dutton. Um, it was a bit of a surprise to his people. And what that did was make them think they had more strong support for Peter Dutton than they actually had. And the reason is that a number of people who were supporting Scott Morrison voted for Peter Dutton to keep that issue alive and to make sure that there was going to be a second vote. Because in the end, history tells us whenever there's a, a first ballot against a prime minister that is uh, not an absolute wipe out decisive win for the incumbent prime minister if the if the challenger gets a substantial sized vote then there's always a second one and usually the incumbent loses and that's exactly what happened this time and it was it was votes of of scott morrison supporters that made sure that it did yes and you write that in that uh second spill where the first vote was obviously to spill the leadership positions there was a vote that was 40 to 45 in favour of uh, spilling those leadership positions and that was uh, one of the other really revealing votes in terms of um, Morrison backers uh, coming forward. Yeah, that's right. Because the next vote uh, ended up being once that vote passed, and and they had to then go on to a spill, and then there were three candidates: Julie Bishop, Scott Morrison, and Peter Dutton. Um, Julie Bishop got the lowest vote and was knocked out first. None of her West Australian colleagues supported her, so there was a whole lot of shenanigans went on there in favour of both the Dutton camp and the Morrison camp. But when we saw that next vote. 
Peter Dutton only got 40 votes. So there were 40 solid supporters of Peter Dutton. If if it was only the Dutton supporters who wanted a spill, well, there would have only been 40 votes for the spill, but there were 45. And you can assume that the Turnbull supporters didn't want the spill. Mm. So the only others left in the in the room then were the Morrison supporters. So there were, it was clear that some of the supporters who ultimately voted for, for Scott Morrison voted to make sure there was a spill. So certainly at that point, they decided it was a point of no return and they were kicking it along to make sure their candidate won. And do you think that in terms of, you know, your sources and how they have responded to you and and the inquiries that you've been making, do you think there has been now an acceptance of what has happened and that Scott Morrison uh, is the the rightful winner and that he, you know, will not be uh, undermined? I think... I mean, for people who are still in the parliament, they obviously want their party to win the election. So I'm sure there'll be, uh, you know, attempts to, from some people certainly, to unify. But there's clearly still some bitterness. And this whole thing was chaotic and bizarre. And uh, it's pretty unedifying. And I think we get the sense from the public that Australian voters are pretty sick of this sort of thing happening, no matter who starts it. Um, they feel like it doesn't give them a say in the democratic process. I mean, Australians don't directly elect their prime minister anyway, but they vote for a party based on what the party's policies are and who its leader is. And so changing the leader mid-term angers people. And I think the, a lot of the um, people who I spoke to are very conscious of that and they feel frustrated. But, you know, there are people in, in both the Dutton and the Turnbull camps who quickly came to this view that, that the Morrison camp had been more active behind the scenes in positioning and being ready than they had realised initially. And so that's why we say that, that really they played both sides to the middle and Scott Morrison come forward. And he's got a big challenge ahead of him to now unify because there are people who are bitter. Um, we're seeing leaking against his government, it's quite substantial leaking in the last few days about things that were supposed to be going to be announced. So that seems to be somebody trying to take steal Scott Morrison's thunder and ensure that he doesn't get the benefit of announcing these things, the infrastructure projects and a deal with the Catholic schools and the like. So, you know, he's got a bit of a way to go before he can unify the party properly. Yes, and there is a, quite a lot of um, conflict that's playing out in public over interviews uh, and also, you know, such as Julia Banks um, announcing her resignation, yeah. outlining the reasons why um, bullying and intimidation over that week of spills. And we've obviously seen Julie Bishop um, quite uh, disenchanted and um angry at the fact that her Western Australian uh, colleagues didn't support yeah. her and, you know, really didn't even tell her that they um, weren't going to support her. Uh, and she, you know, interestingly has decided to stay in her seat yeah. of curtain. Um, and she, you know, one of those excellent lines um, that she used when asked about, you know, do you think the Liberal Party will ever have, um, you know, a female leader? Uh, she said a capable, you know... A popular, fan, popular female popular leader. Popular female yeah. leader, of which she is the most popular um, right. proposed Liberal leader. She said, when we find one, I'm sure we will. And, yeah. and said it in such a, you know, slicing, cutting... Why? Yeah, the eyebrows shot up to say, uh, you know, I'm I'm making a point here. That's yeah, 
It was one of those moments where, um, you know, it is it does reveal that kind of issue that the Liberal Party clearly still has in terms of uh, the culture that exists. And, I mean, we've seen other male uh, MPs come out and say, oh, well, all these women just need to toughen up and deal with it. That's just uh, the nature of politics. But, I mean, it's, I think this behaviour, and I'd love to hear from you, you know, is becoming less and less accepted especially when it does become public and, and women are being courageous in actually making these, um, you know, behaviours that usually never see the light of day and, and usually happen behind closed doors, you know, they're actually now being discussed openly. Yeah, well, I think calling it out is really the only way it ends up being dealt with because if you try to deal with it behind closed doors, then there's no sunlight and it doesn't it doesn't get anywhere. But, you know, there's also always threats of... All promises of, you know, we'll have reviews and we'll talk to people and we'll make sure it doesn't happen anymore, but it continues to happen. And I think good on the women for calling it out. Um, they really do clearly feel very strongly about it. And Kelly O'Dwyer, the Minister for Women, came out yesterday and said, look, Julia Banks is not a petal. She's not a snowflake. Don't tell, it, tell us to toughen up. She's a tough person. She's a highly accomplished woman and she's making a very fair point. And Lucy Gachui, the Senator from South Australia, is making a similar point and threatening to name names under cover of parliamentary privilege. So this issue, they've obviously decided they're going to really go for it and they're not going to let this one drop and it'll be interesting to see where it ends. Exactly. And, I mean, Lucy Gachui really has nothing left to lose given that she, uh, in the pre-selection contest really has been put in an unwinnable position and is unlikely to um, return as a senator. Well, that's right. She, you know, she agreed to join the Liberal Party. She, she was originally a family first senator. That party collapsed underneath her. She joined the Liberal Party instead, but she's now going to be the subject to the power plays in South Australia and she'll be at the, at the bottom of the list. So uh, she's facing that sort of pressure on lots of levels. Maybe part of it's because she's female. Maybe part of it is because she's an outsider and not a factional player. But one way or another, she's going to struggle, yeah. Yeah, it is a bit surprising, I guess, that um, she didn't go down the independent route, which a lot of the other people have um, done. Well, you you struggle even more, I guess, if you're just an independent and you don't have... um any recognition really I mean she won she was low down on the family first ticket she she won by accident because uh, Bob Day got lost his position in the, in the Senate and she had to she was replacing him but um, you know she, she would find it very difficult without without a party to be re-elected so I guess she figured the chances were better with the Liberal Party but she was always going to struggle in the factional power plays mm, yeah in playing politics yeah in her interview with Patricia Carvelis it did it did kind of seem that she wasn't all that interested in the game that is politics. No, um, and a lot of people are very sick of the game that is politics. Uh, there are games that are played, though, which is, um, you know, that's that's the way it is, unfortunately. And uh, you've got to um, find a way to work within that system if you are going to engage in particularly party politics. So, you know, that's a, that's a tough thing for her to manage and it's a tough thing for everyone who joins a large party to manage. But it's a, it's a reality, I'm afraid. Indeed. Ka- uh, Karen, thank you very much uh, for joining me and discussing uh, what was really happening behind the scenes. Um, it's certainly going to perhaps 
uh, not necessarily majorly influence how people perceive Scott Morrison, but it does actually bring to light the fact that perhaps the Liberals uh, weren't so disorganised and um, chaotic as it seemed on the surface. Well, I think they were disorganised and chaotic, but I think there were some people who were also strategic and well-positioned to take advantage of it. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much, Karen. Thanks for having me. Three, triple, R. You are tuned in to 3RRFM. This is Uncommon Sense and I'll be with you until noon today. Uh, I said that I will be speaking about threatened species on the show and um, I'm really pleased to have back in the studio with me, Professor Brendan Wintle, who is a professor in conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne. And he's also the director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, which is a really um, important part of this um, puzzle when we're talking about threatened species because it really brings together the work of many uh, scientists and academics and conservation ecologists uh, who are working to protect and actually bring back, I guess, in larger numbers, those species that are threatened. So I'm really um, glad now to have Brendan with me. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back in. Um, And I really always enjoy speaking with you because it's always really enlightening as to, Mm. I guess, what's happening with threatened species. It's something which, um, you know, we see prop up, I guess, in our Twitter feeds or in news stories, you see, you know, this uh, animal is endangered and, um, you know, there's so many issues going on, it's kind of hard to keep track and also to have an idea of the bigger picture in terms of Australia and what's going on. Um, but the reason why we're talking about threatened species on the show this week is because it's Threatened Species Day on Friday. Um, can you share a bit about the significance of this day that's coming up on Friday? Yeah, Thanks, Amy. It's uh, it's a really important day for us. So Threatened Species Day um, is a day when we reflect on um, extinction, what extinction is, you know, uh, how we, we lose a species, we lose the last individual of the species and uh, that's it, you know, on some, for, for something that's probably existed uh, on the planet for millions and millions of years. Um, Threatened Species Day was specifically set up uh, on September the 7th to commemorate the uh, death of the last known Tasmanian tiger in a zoo in Tasmania in 1936. So that's 82 years ago uh, that the last Tassie tiger died. And um, so I think it's very appropriate that we have our National Threatened Species Day on a day when we lost such an iconic species. Uh, And of course, since then, we've lost many more species, uh, equally tragic in each case. And there's very many touching stories that come out at this time of the year about uh, people who've witnessed the, the the last of the last uh, disappearing. Uh, there's a you know there's a really um, moving story I think about the last call that was heard of the the uh, Christmas Island pipistrelle which we lost a couple of years ago from Christmas Island. Uh, one of our one of our thirty odd mammal extinctions that we've had in Australia since uh, since European settlement. So mm. um, so you know there's there's ecologists who are out there trying to find and bring this species in for captive breeding when they realised that the population was crashing uh, and they recorded 
this last peep from this last Christmas Island pipistrelle and then that was it. Mm. It was never heard or seen of again. So, it's a, yeah, it's a hugely um, engaging um idea and problem threatened species and extinction and and i think it's it's um it's good that we have this day to reflect on that yes exactly um and i'm just curious in terms of the tasmanian tiger i mean was australia and particularly tasmania aware of the i guess threat to that tiger and just how few um their numbers were at the time Mm. because obviously you said that um, that tiger was in captivity. At, at that time in the 1930s, what was the kind of approach to conservation or was there not really a considered approach? That's a very good question. It, it was a, around the time when the, the notion of conservation really started to take hold. It was um, particularly uh, important and developed in the United States, ironically, around game hunting and game hunting reserves uh, and the first big national parks uh, that were set up for the purposes of conserving species were happening at that time. Uh, The Tasmanian tiger, it's a species that we hunted to extinction uh, because of uh, concerns about uh, its impact on sheep and and livestock in in Tasmania. As it turns out, those can concerns were unfounded because the Tassie tiger um, in later studies it's been discovered really couldn't have taken down anything but the tiniest of of sheep so um, it it was never probably as big a threat to uh, sheep and and livestock as as it was thought at the time but there was a really systematic attempt to actually get rid of the species from agricultural areas. Now whether we knew at that stage that we were actually driving it completely to extinction I guess is, is hard to know um, but uh, the problem then of course is that the strategies for captive breeding uh, for keeping species in the game until we can breed up populations to release back into the wild weren't really very well developed at all uh, and I believe there were attempts to breed this animal in captivity but many animals don't breed well in captivity that mm. was one of them and, and we lost that species uh, we're a lot better at that now Uh, Unfortunately, we've had a lot of practice um, and there's experts here in Victoria at the zoo uh, who are um, world leaders in captive breeding and and trying to keep species in the game. But the the tragedy is we we keep getting to the point where captive breeding is necessary even though we know uh, what is driving species to extinction and in many instances we really could do something about it but we're not um, yeah. and we've got a you know a case in the in the age today uh, documented about uh, habitat for the golden-shouldered parrot a, a, a critically endangered species uh, in North Queensland. It only exists in a very small area in North Queensland and there's an application in to clear 2,000 hectares of its habitat. Uh, It's on the Minister's desk and we'll find out uh, this week, I I guess, or or Mm. soon, um, ironically, in uh, close to Threatened Species Day as to whether that gets approved. And unfortunately, we just keep to continuing to approve these major habitat losses and and we know that habitat loss is the number one driver of extinction uh, throughout the planet. So, um, yeah. 
we it, need to sort this out. We do. It's really disappointing. Um, you mentioned there Queensland, mm. and I think from memory, Queensland is still one of the kind of states where habitat loss and land clearing is happening the most or to the greatest mm. extent. Yeah. And it's a little bit surprising because we have a Labor government who you would just assume would be naturally more sympathetic to environmental mm. causes mm. Um, based on their, their ideology and their approach to the environment, but mm. that hasn't really been the case. No. Why do you think there is this, um, you know, willingness to approve uh things like land clearing that are mm. so clearly the cause of you know major threats to biodiversity and threatened mm. species in that particular case in Queensland that was actually approved by the Newman government and it was actually the Commonwealth government that said no we we need to look at this one because mm. we you know it has habitat for a number of listed um threatened species from the national uh, legislation. And so uh, even though it was approved by Campbell Newman's government, it, um, it, it had to wait uh, for this uh, national level approval before it could go ahead. So I guess in that sense, the, uh, the Labor government hasn't had to take the difficult mm. uh, initial decision there. Uh, if they were confronted with that, I don't know what their answer would be at this stage. It's politics is complicated. The uh, demography in that particular state isn't necessarily, you know, uh, doesn't necessarily make the Labor Party particularly always particularly amenable to environmental issues. And of course, mm. we've seen, um, you know, with the uh, encouragement of the of the Adani mine, the Carmichael mine, and the like in Queensland, uh, the Labor government has, you know. Just as much, um, just as much propensity to improve, though, uh, approve those sorts of actions as as the Liberal Nationals. It appears, although I think yeah. I think their efforts to rebuild the um, state public service around environment uh, in Queensland are commendable, and they're certainly doing a lot better job than than Campbell Newman's government did. Mm. But uh, these issues are still live, and it does still seem astonishing to me when we know what what's driving extinction. We have our own legislation, we have international obligations, but we still uh, keep approving these and it just makes you wonder when is enough enough. Mm. Well, you know, can Anastasia Palaszczuk's government has been in power for quite a while now. Mm. You know, it seems like environmental policy appears to be more of a reaction mm. and a response to certain proposals rather than a concerted strategy or plan or or mm. even a proactive um you know yeah. shaping of policy and saying we've identified this as a real issue and we're going to make it a priority yes i mean that's something which is not unique to any particular government or um state or at the federal level it seems mm. to be more of a trend actually in terms mm. of in the environmental policy, which at some points in history has been a real election issue, yes. particularly at the federal level, I'm recalling, mm. Mm. about 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and now it's not. It's just kind of that add-on at the end. Exactly. Yeah, we've, we've, we have had a, uh, a shift. It's not a central part of the narrative now, unfortunately. Um, and at least federally environment ministers have been much less powerful uh, in in cabinet than they were in the past um, except when they're given the energy portfolio as well but, but yeah. obviously that that uh, slight conflict there <laughs> yes the, uh, the environment 
seems to take a bit of a back seat when that was the case. At least now we have a dedicated environment minister at the federal level mm. and um, she's facing a real test straight up um, around this uh, the Kingvale approval. So, so we'll she, see how she goes. Um, look, coming back to this issue, it's really up to us and everybody to actually bring biodiversity, environment, threatened species back into focus um, in the political uh, in the political theatre. We've got to actually have good campaigns and we have to find a way to get buy-in from voters about this issue. When people are asked to poll uh, what's important to them, mm. the environment does come up. So, uh, so the essence is there for people's concern and care and climate change remains a really important issue. Um, recently, the World Economic Forum listed biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse in their top 10 risks to business uh, globally. It's there. You know, people are aware of it, people who are educated about it and people who aren't are, uh, have a feeling for threatened species, have a feeling for biodiversity that this is really important. So really I think what we need is actually leadership uh, from politicians and someone to harness that um, harness that feeling, harness that undercurrent and see if we can bring it up to the forefront of public policy again, where, where, which is where I, I believe it deserves to be. Uh, if you think about biodiversity and how much we depend on nature for our own existence, uh, it seems rather astonishing that we, we can continue to ignore it in that way. Mm. I guess that's part of the logic of Threatened Species Day. It's it's one of the many activities that we get involved with to try and promote uh, the cause of threatened species. I'll, I'll give a little plug, if I may, yeah. to a particular event uh, that's on at the University of Melbourne uh, this Friday for Threatened Species Day, starting at 1.30 uh, in the Redmond Barry Theatre, I believe. Uh, you might check that for me, Amy. Yeah, I'll check right now. Um, uh, Baldwin Spencer. In the Baldwin Spencer Theatre, yeah. thanks. Starting at 1.30, it goes for the afternoon and we're having a series of great talks. Um, in particular, we'll be hearing from uh, a couple of speakers uh, from Tasmania um, and uh, Terry Mulhern from uh, the university who've been involved in raising the profile of a wonderful species from Tasmania, a, a freshwater crayfish, giant freshwater crayfish. Um, Terry and colleagues at the um, Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre have, um, have, I guess, re um, re uh, instigated the name uh, of this species back to Lutera lapina, uh, which is the traditional or indigenous name for this giant freshwater cray. Uh, it's a it's an amazing species. It can grow up to a meter long. So imagine going for a swim and coming Jeez. across a one meter long um, freshwater cray. That that puts the the pincer size at my guess at something like an Aussie rules football. Mm. Um, and uh, no doubt if it got hold of your leg, you'd get a, a fair old shock. Um, these things live for you know around eighty years. Nobody really knows. It's very hard to to uh, age invertebrates because they shed their their. Um, their exoskeleton every every uh, or at a regular interval anyway. So uh, so it's a it's a really fascinating, amazing species. It is threatened um, due to uh, land use change. So logging and clearing in the catchments adds sediment to the catchments. Same old story. Uh, they can't exist when in uh, in turbid streams. They need mm. that beautiful freshwater, uh, those those amazing Tasmanian freshwater rivers to be able to survive properly and breed. Um, and uh, 
so to their credit, a couple of companies in Tasmania, um, including a brewery, the Moo Brew Brewery, have uh, advertising campaigns relating to the conservation of this species and um, both of the both this crayfish and well freshwater cray I should call it and um, Moo Brew rely on mm. freshwater uh, and uh, and so there's a nice connection there and to their credit Moo Brew have put out an advertising campaign and they've got some uh, they donate from a, a particular line of their product to uh, to try and improve the the conservation outlook for this species so it'll it'll be a great day anyway on Friday so come on down and, and hear some really fascinating talks from uh, threatened species experts yeah it is a really great lineup um, I was looking at it and of course you'll be speaking as well Brendan um, and you're giving the final presentation of the day so right. no pressure <laughs> <laughs> especially coming after that list of speakers yeah yeah uh, challenge really great people I'm sure you'll do a fabulous job but what I mean your role is you know important in the sense that you're um, heading up this threatened species recovery hub you're across I guess there's so many varied activities and research mm. that's happening at the moment from many universities, not just your own. Mm, exactly. And um, and certainly, I guess you have oversight. You have a unique position in a way to be able to be involved in a range of efforts mm. and to kind of have that bigger picture view. Yeah. In terms of um, conservation in Australia, how do we measure up um, in comparison to other nations around the world? Mm, that's a that's a really good question, and uh, and I think last time I was uh, on the show, I was talking about our extinction record. So since um, European colonisation, we've lost over a hundred species and thirty um, odd mammals, around thirty birds. Uh, it's a, it's an a, an extinction risk track record that puts us at the forefront of extinctions globally. Uh, we have an extinction rate. Uh, we, some, we often think in terms of um, our extinction rate relative to geological timescales and, and long history. Uh, and at the moment, it's it's between 100 and 1,000 times the background rate. So if you think um, we expect to lose globally about one bird species every 400 years, if you look at the if you look at the um, geological uh, record, we've lost 30 in Australia in less than 200 years. And so you can see why that's just Australia, that's not the globe, uh, yeah. and and it's uh, it's a huge impact. So you can see why people are worried. We are in an extinction crisis. It's even been called the Anthropocene because of the way we've changed environments and we're driving other species to extinction. So it's a mass extinction event. Um, Australia is at the forefront of that. And um, unfortunately, we're just not quite doing enough. I've, I've recently been analysing our um, expenditure on threatened species and even compared to the United States where they spend the equivalent of about 2 to $2.5 billion a year on targeted threatened species programs, we spend my absolute most generous upper limit um, mm. estimate is about $300 million a year, but that's on all sorts of programs that mm. that uh, vaguely relate to threatened species. And I would say our targeted spending would be closer to $100 million a year. So, you know, America's outgunning us by at least 20 times uh, in terms of our expenditure on threatened species. 
despite the fact that they have 175 fewer species listed on their national threatened species legislation. So it's a it's a rather damning statistic. And the, th- and the thing that we know now is that when you spend money on threatened species, it works. They haven't lost any threatened species since the institution of their act, um, and that was in the early 70s. Wow. Uh, we've lost quite a few, and part of the problem is that their threatened species legislation mandates spending on threatened species, and it and it has much stronger protection for critical habitats. They've got areas designated as critical habitats which you cannot go near or you get your butt in court immediately. Mm. Uh, the size of California, the, that is when you add them up, it, it's equivalent to the size of the state of California. So, you know, we, that's an incredible um, effort in terms of threatened species conservation and they're winning that fight. We're not because we just don't spend enough, unfortunately. We spend less on targeted threatened species conservation on an annual basis than we give in tax concessions, fuel tax concessions, just to the mining industry alone. So you could take away that fuel tax um, concession and solve two big problems. You could double our threatened species budget and you could uh, perhaps reduce some emissions. So, you know, (laughs) the the situation is quite dire. And then obviously, you know, if if you say we spend about Hundred million a year. We spend forty billion a year on defence, and and that's going to go up to about fifty billion in forward estimates uh, over the next couple of years. So, you know, we have to shift our priorities a little bit, and that starts with raising the profile of threatened species and actually bringing uh, bringing that issue into the political domain again. Exactly. Um, it is quite surprising to hear that America's so advanced when it comes to this and Mm. if I guess if you think about it 300 million is really a drop in the ocean for any area of policy exactly I mean you know we spend so much on medical research and Mm. health programs that you know are really public awareness raising campaigns Mm. these are things that are you know I'm sure um very efficient programs. Uh, it's mm. what strikes me in the environmental area is that um, scientists and other organisations do a lot with very little because mm. they're obviously used to that level of underfunding. Mm. Um, I guess how do we bring this issue to the fore, um, particularly, and find advocates in the parliament to take this up because it seems like you do need those champions, mm. those individuals who are willing to keep putting the issue forward every time you know it goes to the background again. Yeah. Do we have any of those champions at the federal level or the state level that stand out to you? Yeah, look, there are people who are good. They're strong on the environment and uh, able to bring this to the fore. So Senator Rice um, from the Greens has got a Senate inquiry up at the moment about uh, the extinction crisis. Uh, people are still able to submit um, their uh, their thoughts to that inquiry, uh, although only until uh, close of business on Monday, I believe. So the 10th is the, is the close for, for submissions to that inquiry. Um, that's been, you know, Bob Brown over the years and um, and the Greens have done a good job. And as you said, mm. there were people um, for whom this was core 
issue when they were when they were in Parliament. Although that does seem to have dried up, those champions do seem to have dried up a little across the um, across the uh, the two major parties at the moment. At the state level, we've had some good champions as well, and and John Thwaites was an excellent environment minister, and he did a lot of important stuff, made some big changes. Um, we need that direct action again, and I think this is the thing um, we need to keep telling the story that when you spend money on threatened species, you save them. This is not money that's poured down the drain. You can have a lot of great stories. Our Threatened Species Recovery Hub has published a book called The Book of Hope, which is a set of, of, of stories about how... Um, groups of people with small amounts of funding, as you, as you say, usually, uh, have managed to bring species back from the brink to the point where they're not, no longer threatened with immediate uh, extinction. And that's, um, you know, it's important to tell those good stories as well to highlight the fact that we can mm. solve these problems if we put the resources towards it and people can make a difference. It's, it's usually individuals. It's one champion from these recovery teams, from these groups that really drive the conservation of species. So, so uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really key issue. The other thing too is probably the... the, the and we're in a fortunate position under the Threatened Species Recovery Hub because we have been given this opportunity to be sort of a somewhat coordinated lead organisation uh, in threatened species research. So that's sort of to the credit of, of Minister Hunt, who actually set up this program and, and identified the need specifically for a threatened species recovery hub. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been a, a great initiative and it's allowed us to tell a number of these stories and that's important. Telling the stories is important for a start. We also have, you know, 120 projects across the country working specifically on the ground to try and support threatened species recovery. So that provides some of the knowledge needs, but you then need to back that up with action and action costs money. Yeah, it does. And it reminds me, like you mentioned that Senate inquiry. I remember there was this kind of flurry on Twitter. I think it was during Senate estimates. One of those um, estimates at least where the public service um, was there to talk about their knowledge of um, threatened species and what was actually happening to, you know, coordinate an action plan or do we actually know the number of this particular bird or mammal that currently exists? And I think from memory, and I'd love to, hopefully you can correct me, um, that they basically couldn't actually give an answer as to how many of a certain species that was really, you know, well-known to be endangered mm. there still was mm. and um, they had to take it on notice and it, it kind of revealed a bit of a blind spot, so to speak, around these, this kind of issue. Yeah, look, it, it's... I, I don't remember exactly that issue, though um, it's probably in fairness to the people who are uh, in the environment department, they are operating on tiny budgets. Mm. They have had massive cuts to the, to their department over the last five, ten years. Uh, I would say they're about half the size they, they were um, about, about eight years ago. So they're trying to do a, a lot with very mm. little. There's 1,800 species on the threatened species list. These are species that have been judged by scientific experts to be close to extinction or close enough that they get on this list. Uh, and so that's a big job. Uh, and the people at the top of that department, it's probably difficult for them to tell exactly um, what's going on with, mm. which e with each of those listed threatened species. That said, uh, I think it does reflect um, 
a bit of a lack of focus in politics at the moment on this issue. Uh, it would be great if we had champions at that at that level who were able to be successful uh, in winning over the hearts and minds of politicians. And then, because once you do that, you know, it's it's not such a big step for them to win over hearts and minds of people mm. um, if they are pushing an issue like this because, you know, who hates a threatened species? Uh, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great issue for, for politicians to get on board and do a good thing for. Yeah. Uh, and it's... as you said, we currently spend a drop in the ocean. If mm. we spent 10 drops in the ocean, if we increased our budget tenfold because of the efficiency of threatened species actions, we could probably conserve 10 times as many species as we currently do. Yeah. So I think it's it's that kind of return on investment that you get when you spend money on threatened species. Yeah, and you um, in the, the latest kind of booklet or newsletter from the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, um, one of your statistics that um, is cited is really clear. It says that 80% of Australians do not want further extinctions and are willing to invest in preventing them. So, mm. I mean, that's a huge resounding yes yeah. in terms of populations, support of conservation and particularly of those that are, you know, coming up to the brink of extinction. Mm. Um, when you've got that level of buy-in from the community, mm. it's kind of hard to see how you're in a losing position as a politician. Look, absolutely. Uh, and it is bamboozling to me, I must admit, uh, because there's a lot of non-controversial things you can do uh, to improve outcomes for threatened species. So we know that a huge part of the impact on threatened species is feral cats and foxes. Um, that's been recognised. That's been a big flagship issue uh, even for this current government. Mm. Um, so why aren't we spending you know, five times the amount of money we're currently spending, um, just chip into that that coal fuel subsidy a little bit and actually put something towards something that every is going to be popular with everybody. You know, getting rid of foxes is something that's popular with landholders mm. and farmers and, and, of course, people who are seeing the response of, of threatened species in the environment. So, so yeah, I, I don't really understand why we don't um, spend more on those types of issues. The flip side, of course, is, you know, the Kingvale clearing application case where you actually have very senior people in the government, very vocal, uh, that this person should be allowed to clear that land uh, and they'll be putting a lot of pressure, Warren Inch and mm. people like that will be putting a lot of pressure on the minister, uh, the new minister. Uh, she's only been in this job for a few weeks, even that. Uh, even less. Well, she's been she's been assistant for, for a bit. Mm. Um this is a big uh, this is a big challenge for her because these are the issue around land clearing, sort of the number one driver of of, of extinctions on the planet. Um, it is politically uh, divisive because there are a lot of people who definitely resent uh, constraints being put on their uh, ability to clear land uh, in order to you know make money or, or, and uh, and so that is a politically difficult issue for both major parties in in uh, in politics at the mm. moment and something that's you know we need more of a discussion about that publicly so that we can actually uh, deal with that slightly more politically tricky side of the equation it's not scientifically complicated we know the answer mm. uh, when you clear habitats you lose species and we've got a, a you know a very painful demonstration of that in australia over over just a couple of hundred years but um but 
we have to have that mature political discussion so that we can move forward on land clearing. But in the meantime, let's spend a lot more money on the conservation efforts that we really can spend money on without much political controversy and save those species that are threatened by feral cats, feral predators that need captive breeding programs, that are threatened by goats and rabbits and invasive weeds. You know, there's 1,800 species we can be working on and about probably more than half of them can be dealt with or solved in a fairly politically non-controversial way. Mm. Um, I'm speaking with Professor Brendan Wintle, who is the director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. Um, I just want to remind everyone that if you are a Triple R subscriber and you want to um, be in the running to go to a special screening for Won't You Be My Neighbour, you need to call in now on 93881027. It is going to be screening on Sunday, September the 9th at 11am at Cinema Nova. So call in uh, if you want a double pass and hopefully you are lucky enough to receive that double pass. Now, um, Brendan, I want to just quickly um, go over maybe some examples of species that are threatened. And I'd also um, love to hear a bit about some of the um, flora, like the actual plants that are threatened because Mm. they're often you know, from a general population perspective, not really known about and probably don't receive as much attention as uh, the mammals or the birds do. So, mm. you know, what are some of those kind of really um, cases that stick out to you as being interesting? I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure they're all interesting, but, you know, yeah. of particular importance at the moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. There, As I said, there are, um, you know, over 1,800 species on our list, so it's a little bit difficult to know where to start. Probably uh, a big part of the list is made up of plants, really highly range-restricted plants that have... Um, specific uh, breeding uh, biology or population biology that that make them a little more difficult to conserve. Uh, There would be, uh, and and I'd be guessing here, but there must be 20 or 30 Banksia species in uh, in Western Australia Mm -hmm. that are sitting on roadsides. There's just a tiny little patch of them. There can be less than 10 individuals left. Uh, And, you know, there's, there's very... They've lost pretty much all of the area where it used to persist in the farmlands, in the wheat belt, uh, around those roadside reserves. Uh, And these banksias require fire to regenerate uh, and they require fire at a very specific interval. If it comes within a year or two years of the previous fire, the the plants haven't had enough time to develop mature seeds and um, for those seeds to then be able to germinate in the in the ash bed. So um, a lot of these species are uh, have to be taken out or not taken out. The, the seeds are taken away and germinated and kept in, you know, um, herbaria uh, and bred up in stock. There's seed banks and some, some really uh, fascinating conservation um, efforts and challenges to overcome in, in trying to conserve these these difficult threatened plants mm. i guess uh and and the issues can be a little bit different to some of the the threatened animal issues uh often when you have such a tiny population uh you you have inbreeding depression in the plants and and sometimes it's just too late if there are too few individuals you know you can keep the the um the material going for a few generations, but then these these plants lose their ability to uh, lose their ability to actually um, 
germinate and and produce viable seed. Mm. Uh, so, a lot of those species are kind of walking dead. Uh, there's there's a number of species. Uh, there's a particular banks here uh, in New South Wales. I, I, the name just eludes me for a minute, but its uh, its last population is just on a roadside uh, where they're wanting to develop a major highway, um, and so rather than shift the direction of the highway away from from where this species is they're engaging in attempts at translocation and these species are really hard to translocate Mm. um it's very difficult to to have successful uh translocation of any plants to be honest and we've had that experience here in victoria with uh with a bunch of species that were that we attempted to move off of um, development locations so it just gives you a sense of the of the um the challenge, uh, the, the sort of popularity problem that, that rare plants have, you, you just don't get people out chaining themselves to the last couple of little straggly um, banksias uh, on the roadside to protect them. And so, you know, there are mm. dedicated uh, researchers up there who, who you know, are trying to breed them up and create populations ex situ, but it's very difficult. Um, we have a, a, a plant species um, spiny rice flower, um, which is the Pimelia species in Victoria, that has the unfortunate um, tendency to grow in areas where we're trying to develop um, new developments on the Western Plains grasslands. Um, there's been a number of attempts to basically lift the the site and take it elsewhere and, and plant them, uh, you know, get them going in in sort of translocation sites, and they just almost never work. It's just not a very viable conservation um, effort. If you've got Pimelia spinescens, you're probably on grasslands that represent less than 0.1% of the pre-European extent of these basalt plains grasslands. So we've we've basically cleared or, or um, altered beyond recognition uh, this ecosystem type in, uh, in Victoria through agriculture and now through urban development. Um, you know, why would we be trying to lift these plants and move them? It's, it's the last 0.1% of this viable habitat. I think that's at the point where we should be just saying enough's yeah. enough. So you know, it just comes back to the the political narrative around what's important to us. And unfortunately, the the uh, house price rhetoric uh, often overcomes the um, you know the last point one percent of the basalt plains grassland mm. as a conservation issue. So you know, again, it's a it's a it's a public image problem. It's a political leadership problem. If if the minister was standing up and saying we can't compromise on the last 0.1 percent, we've done enough damage here. Let's move this development somewhere else. Uh, let's pay a bit more and put it on some land that's currently agricultural land or something like that. So you know, these trade-offs uh, come from from politicians and their views come from people. So it's up to us all to really change that narrative. I think that's so true. And presumably, there's a reason why these types of species have thrived in that particular area mm. and why perhaps translocation wouldn't mm. be that ideal. That's right. If you... Uh, if you, I, I mean, for the most part, these translocations will, you know, involve an ecologist and they'll be, you know, so they won't be trying to take them to an area where it's twice the rainfall or completely the wrong soil mm. type. Uh, but, you know... I don't know if you've ever tried to, you know, just pick up a plant and and move it at home, especially if it's a woody shrub. Um, 
and especially if it's a native species, it's very hard to do. There's a lot of native species that you prune and they just die because mm. they're just not very, very um, tough, I guess, in, in uh, certainly or, or resilient to to um, to humans. So it, it is difficult. To, to do that sort of work and there are people who are expert in it. There are people who are expert in propagating these threatened species and, and they are the reason why these species still exist in many instances. Uh, but really we have to come back to the difficult um, question of when do you say we're no longer going to try to move this species, we're just going to leave it where it is and we're going to conserve that habitat and we're going to try and restore some new areas. And that's an area that I think is is really important and, and sort of underplayed at the moment is the role for restoration. It's a it's a an area where people can really contribute, even if you're not an expert in threatened species or anything. Uh, you could become part of a friends group and engage in restoration either on your land or on public land uh, where it's been degraded because of weed invasion or or whatever other form of neglect we've imposed on it. Um, There's huge opportunities for us to actually um, sort of, I guess, try and make small steps to turning the balance the other way in favour of threatened species by actually actively restoring habitats um, and you know, it would be great if we saw some sort of programs, some seed money, some investment from uh, from governments to try and actually improve that. And I think that's probably a good opportunity under um, Victoria's biodiversity strategy. Uh, they have a, a biodiversity 2037, which is by and large, I think, quite a good strategy. Um, and And a big part of that strategy is trying to connect people with nature then I think, you know, finding ways to get people out and feeling like they are actually helping solve the problem themselves is a really important Mm. part of engaging with nature and getting you thinking about, you know, environmental and threatened species issues and talking to your friends about it and maybe changing the way someone votes. Exactly. Um, And finally, if we wanted to engage with nature more, I mean, there's obvious ways like going to national parks and actually Mm. experiencing nature Mm. and its wonder Mm. and that's something that I you know certainly tried to do and absolutely loved going to the Lerdedurg National Park and um, the Tulangi National Park there's so many like amazing Mm. places with like a whole range of birds and and trees, really old trees. But if you wanted to be, I guess, not just to have a, a connection with nature, but you wanted to change nature or improve the outcomes for threatened species, what are some of the things that people might think about doing that are, you know, a little bit more targeted? Yeah. Look, well, there's there's so many things. I mean, you can start by getting out and becoming part of a friends group. So the Mary Creek, you know, uh, friends group. There's there's, a, there's there'll be similar groups across the uh, across Melbourne and, and across Victoria that you can become involved with. You can um, you can get involved by doing the right thing. If you have a cat. Don't let it out at night. Yeah. Put a bell on it. Mm. You know, there's the, we, we, we know that um, that we lose about a million birds a day to cats uh, across the country and a, quite a large proportion of those are from are from domestic cats. Uh, so, so we need to do simple, basic things um, and, and show due diligence. 
become part of your local action groups. There's Friends of the Central Highlands, Forest, the Leadbeaters, um, Possum, uh, Friends of Groups. There's there's so many different organisations focused around threatened species. You basically just have to look up the name of a threatened species, you know, the um, orange-bellied parrot or Leadbeater's Possum, Greater mm. Glider, and you'll find opportunities to get involved, um, even get involved with the uh, Lutera Lupina um giant freshwater crayfish um, friends group. There's a website. There's there's um, lots of opportunities to connect. So I think there's a real tangible thing that we can do. But the other thing we can do is get involved in, in uh, programs or get involved in campaigns to actually try and influence our politicians because mm. in the end they need to hear from us how important this issue is uh, before they start showing that leadership that we sort of haven't really seen for 15 or 20 years around environment and threatened species. Yep. And uh, just a reminder that the state government election is coming up in November. Mm-hmm. So if there ever was a time to start voicing your opinion loudly, mm. it would be now yes. um, because, yeah, certainly uh, the environment needs to be put back on the agenda as a top priority. Yes, exactly. And and there are people, you know, who, who are out there trying to do that, the Conservation Foundation and Environment Victoria, mm. um, great organisations that you can be a part of or donate to who are really making a difference. Um, the Environment Defenders Office or Environment Justice, uh, there are a couple of organisations who are trying to bring, you know, uh, accountability to uh, to political decisions around environment. So, yeah, there's lots of great organisations to get out and support and there's also mm-hmm. organisations that are, that are getting out there, spending money, restoring land, uh, and making a huge difference like Bush Heritage Australia and the Australian Wildlife yes. Conservancy. Uh, so there's a lot of great people doing wonderful things. So there's, there's, there's an innumerable opportunities to get on board. Brendan, it's been really great to speak with you. And um, if people want to get along to the Threatened Species Day Symposium that you mentioned, it's at the University of Melbourne in the Baldwin Spencer Theatre in the Baldwin Spencer building <laughs> in Parkville. And as you said, it starts at 1.30 and goes till 4.45. So I think that's also a great way for people to get engaged intellectually in this issue and hear about some amazing um programs that are going on and from the researchers themselves and yeah thank you and i hope you have a great threatened species day and a successful one on friday thank you so much amy three triple ah. You are, as I said, tuned into Uncommon Sense, taking you through till noon. And I'm really um, excited to have with me on the phone Peter Cochran, who is uh, a historian and he's also a novelist. And he's written a book uh, which is called Best We Forget The War for White Australia 1914 to 1918. And uh, Peter joins me on the phone uh, to talk about this excellent uh, book and what uh, he's discovered. So um, hello there, Peter. Hello, Amy. Uh, great to great to be uh, with you. It's wonderful to have you and uh, congratulations on this book, um, which Thanks is so out. Much. Yeah, it's out through text uh, publishing. And 
It's an, an excellent uh, book because it certainly makes accessible um, a part of history that has been kind of fairly disparate and uh, mm. really quite dry. And from my um, perspective, I was fascinated by, um, you know, the background to the White Australia policy and mm-hmm. um, and certainly the conscription referendums that occurred uh, in the World War One, and really were such an, a microcosm um, of the kind of conflicts that were um, that existed at the time. The divides between Protestant and Catholic, and workers and business, and um, mm. you know, it really did kind of um, highlight the the divisions and um, the kind of political lines uh, that existed. Even though the the party lines were a bit more blurred, um, as yeah. as we'll get to find out. Um, mm-hmm. But your book does go through a bit of the history um, of yep. of Australia's experience with race and I guess the fear um, that exists from the perspective of not only the population but particularly the politicians and the concerns that they had um, being an outpost, I guess, of yep. Britain at the time. Yep. Can you share a bit about um, what... I guess the Australian psyche was at the time and what the politicians were um, preoccupied with in terms of race. Yes, I can, I can do that. I should say first that I think the book will, as you suggested, come as a bit of a surprise to many readers because, of course, we went off to war um, to, be, uh, to join the fight um, with the British, with the British um, for the British Empire against Germany. I'm not arguing with that. What I'm talking about is what I've called the story behind the story, and that's the story of... The book essentially is about the way that race fear of um, one particular Asian nation, Japan, and distrust of Britain in that regard because Japan and Britain were very closely allied back then, the way that those two things drove the strategic thinking of Commonwealth parliamentarians um, prior to the war, during the war, and the peace negotiations thereafter. But of course, as you say, there is a background to that. It goes race fear, and fear of Asia in particular goes deeper. So the book, um, although the subtitle is The War for White Australia 1914-18, the book does have some introductory chapters which survey that um, previous period. Um, looking at the way that in the first instance, uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, there was a great deal of anxiety about Chinese arriving in in Australia before the big worry about Japan, it's China. And um, a lot of the reactions back then in the 1880s and the 1890s were similar to the reactions um, in 30 years earlier in the gold rushes. Um, great anxiety, great um, racial fear, I think, and all sorts of notions about the racial qualities of mind and the racial practices that um, the Chinese were bringing with them into Australia. Um, a lot of it, um, a, a lot of it, um, arising, I think, because of the way in which race was thought about at that time. Um, we often just think about race in terms of colour and, you know, physiognomy, the shape of the face, and so on. But the racism of that time, which was really a sort of pseudoscience was the belief that these surface things, colour, physiognomy, really connected to deeper qualities of mind, as one of the politicians put it. So, And, and on the basis of those qualities, um, the races were ordered in a sort of God-given hierarchy with the whites at the top. And there's great, great 
worry um, throughout the European world, and it's you know it's the Dominions and the U.S., the United States, about whether or not that hierarchy was safe and stable. Great deal of anxiety about the possibility that the that the um, that the non-white races might overrun the white races. So that's the that's the background. That's uh, which in Australia was largely focused on the Chinese, but at the same time, the Japanese had made. Um, a determined effort not to be like China and the rest of Asia. I mean, I think there was two colonial... There was a colonial perspective on Asia, which divided Asia into two types. Um, degenerate Asia was one phrase. Some of the language is pretty horrifying to us today. Degenerate Asia and formidable Asia. And as Japan modernised rapidly, industrialised rapidly, uh, um, with uh, great assistance from... Britain in that latter part of the 19th century and in the early early 20th century, as that happened, and Japan and Britain became closer and closer, um, so Australia got more and more worried. So that when 1902, the Anglo-Japanese alliance is formed, a military alliance, um, Japan by that time is probably the most powerful naval force in the Pacific. When it destroyed the Russian Navy in 1905, the Australians certainly knew it was. Um, without a doubt. And there's Britain with this very, very close Asiatic, to use that their term, this very close Asiatic um, for, um, nation at the centre of power in London. So the real worry, and it only got worse, the worry only got worse as time went on, as the, the world, they didn't know it was coming, but that's of course the World War, world War I approached. And the big worry was an, there was an Asiatic, for Australia anyway, which of course had its white Australia policy to protect as of 1902. The big worry was there was an Asiatic nation dictating policy at the centre of the empire. And that in fact did affect considerably the way in which the um, the the, legis the, legis the white Australia legislation was debated in Australia in the new Commonwealth Parliament in 1901. It affected it profoundly because um, the British, um, with the Japanese in their ear, 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 were insisting to the Australian Parliament, to Prime Minister Barton and his, his government, that it must not be. Even if, if Australia is going to lock itself up as a race-pure white nation, it must, the legislation must not be explicit about discriminating against Asians. Mm. And so there was this sort of... There was the, what we, we now know, we now refer to as the European language test which was a very thinly disguised way of having white Australia and pretending it wasn't specifically directed at, at Asians, but everybody knew it was, including the Japanese, who were lobbying heavily in Melbourne. They had a consul here, a man called Mr. H.A. Taki, and they had a, a, a resident minister in London, Hayashi Tadasu, Baron Hayashi Tadasu. They were lobbying constantly um, against the white Australia policy, saying, it, how, how can Britain be um, in a vital military alliance with a, with a nation such as Japan, which is as civilised as any other nation in Europe, with its arts, its military power, its, its um, sophisticated government and so on. How can, how can the empire have a country like Australia that is actually um, producing us at every turn? I mean, the, the, the debate 
for the white Australia policy, or over the, the Immigration Restriction Bill, as it was called in the 1900, which I, I've dedicated Chapter 3 to that. It's called, chapter 3 is called The Declaration of White Australia. It really is quite extraordinary, some of the language that's used and some of the things that are said about about Asians. One of the most interesting ones, because the Japanese thought being so quote-unquote civilised that they, they, they might be exempted somehow, but one of the most interesting arguments was that the more educated an Asiatic is, the more cunning he is. Um, and that, that was repeated on a number of occasions in, in the debate, that, that um, it's no good saying they're civilised, it's no good saying they're educated, they're, that means they're more cunning. Um, and I don't know how much you want me to say about that debate, but it is very interesting. Well, yes, it is interesting, and I know you've gone into a lot of detail in terms of mm. looking at the transcripts in Hansard, um, mm. and it is really enlightening to see the primary evidence um, mm. on the record. It sure is, yeah. yeah. And every MP, as you said, had kind of a different approach, different arguments, but they all had similar themes, which was that, yeah. you know, this is a battle, um, it's a survival of the fittest, it used a yeah. lot of social Darwinism to support, did, yeah. yeah, to yeah. support the legislation that was actually really entrenching the white Australia policy um, in, you know, everything we do, but particularly yeah. in immigration. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, just some of the things that uh, has been said, um, you know, Alfred Deakin was one of those uh, politicians that didn't necessarily hold back in terms of sharing he, what he really thinks um, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the Japanese. And... Uh, I mean, there's a million different kind of quotes I guess you could pick from, but um, mm. what really stood out to you in those debates and, I mean, in probably some of the less thinly veiled, like the, the just really blatant, um, you know, mm -hmm. rhetoric? Well, look, one of the main themes in the, in the debate, which goes on for months, so we're talking about, I never added up the pages, but we're talking about many hundreds of pages of Hansard here. Um, by the way, it's now accessible on online. There's a very good Hansard uh, website with a very good search engine, so you can Excellent. follow this up fairly easily. Anybody can if they they want to, and I, can, I think I have to say to you, I probably couldn't have written this book without it. It was so handy. Um, but look, the, to answer your question, the the language is really interesting because one of the main themes that comes through in uh, constantly in the debate or continuously in the debate is miscegenation, the fear of the mixing of the races. And the Labor leader, Chris Watson, John Christian Watson, actually says, look, we can't have them in this country because they are not people that we would want to marry our sisters. They're not people we'd want to share our table with at home. They're not people we'd invite into our home, etc., etc." Um And the idea was, and so the, some of the language, they, the, the talk was of things like race pollution, race dilution, um, the white blood getting thinner and thinner, language like that, or, which again, as, as you suggested before, is to do with the social science associated with race thinking in the late 19th century and, and social, social Darwinism, a real fear that if the, if the higher races and the lesser races, and again I'm using the terminology of the time, were to interbreed, another, another term, um, then the lower races would always bring down the higher races. It would never work the other way. And there's some, there's some pretty shocking, at least from our 2018 point of view, some pretty shocking talk about, about that. It, it, um, 
it did go on and on, and I was surprised to find that um, miscegenation was one of the one of the really the really main main themes. That related, by the way, to the great value that um, the Commonwealth parliamentarians who were debating this bill put in put on white Australia itself, or race purity, or the idea of an of a, of the last continent on earth that could in fact wall itself off retreat into racial seclusion and have this kind of pure white pure white nation the really important point to understand is that this at the time was understood as a positive ideal a very good thing and not only that it was understood i mean there's no shame about this there was great pride that's the point it was it was understood as as the prerequisite for all of the great ambitions the high aspirations the um, plans for reform for a bigger better brighter australia all of that it was accepted i think widely accepted that um all of that hinged on race purity because as i said if you didn't have race purity the understanding was you're only going to go down but if you have the other side of that coin is if you have race purity you can indeed embark on this i mean the timing of on this great you know social national experiment called federation the new nation of australia the timing's really interesting because I suppose you'd have to say it's. Ex it, I mean, there are reasons why Federation happens in 1901, but I think I've never thought about this before. But I think you could say it's accidental that 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 timing places the new nation um, or brings about the new nation at a moment when all of these anxieties are swirling around and when the thinking about the racial hierarchy and what's going to happen and you know where where are the, where are all the different races going to end up is really quite quite powerful in the certainly in the intellectual culture at the time um so yeah that's i think that's my answer is that does that <laughs> yes, yes, it does, and um, and certainly some of the quotes you highlight happened during the conscription debate, and um, mm. William Morris Hughes or Billy Hughes, uh, who was very short and had a really um, odd voice, a very kind of gravelly, like strong, yeah. coarse voice. Uh, he said that, um, you know, he was trying to galvanise the Australian men to, quote, fight for white Australia in France. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, and I guess that's what this book is doing, is directly tying that um, yeah. uh, anxiety and fear and concern and proactive shaping of mm. Australia as a distinct... Um, breed or race yeah. uh, behind the the strategy to go to war. It was one of the yeah, motivations, yeah. not the only one, of course. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Certainly, people were motivated to be loyal to you yeah, know the yeah. empire. Um, but this is, I, as you said, the story behind the story. Um, mm. How did you, I guess, come across the story behind the story, like what was it for you when you were researching that suggested to you there was more of a um, wow. coherent or intentional strategy? Well, um, when I was teaching history um, back in the last century, <laughs> he says, in the, in the, um, the 1980s and 1990s at, at Sydney University before I decided to become a freelance writer, I, I was... I did become increasingly aware that there were about 20 books in the realm of 
of foreign policy and Australian foreign policy and diplomacy that were well known in the in the business in academe as it were but you know that weren't well known at all um, beyond beyond that some of them were foreign policy books some of them were biographies and so for example there was a wonderful biography um, about Billy Hughes written two-volume biography that was written in the um, or published in one of them in the 1960s one in the 1970s um, and some of the so just as an example that particular biography by L.F. Fitzharding you know had a very fascinating chapter on Hughes's um, voyage to England in the middle of the war I think he leaves in um, early 1916 and he's there in London for quite a while and one of the reasons that he goes one of the foremost reasons is the fear of Japan what's happened I mean I think you linked up the background really nicely to the to the period of the war um, and so we are now talking about um, conscription and the and, and the fighter uh, fight around that what what happened was that that once the war was underway and Japan was a major ally, one of the major allies of Britain, um, Japan's importance um, only grew, you know, exponentially as time went on and as the the British got more and more bogged down in Europe in the Western, on the Western Front and so on. And so the, Jap the, the Japanese really were kind of looking after the Pacific for... Um, the, for the, uh, what we can now call the Allies, the Entente Forces, Britain and Co. Um, and and um, they were pressing very hard, for example, for the Australians to... Um, they were using the opportunity, as any, <laughs> as any, any self-interested nation would, to press their own interests at the, at the same time as being a very good ally. They, they were pressing mm. very hard for Australia to join a thing called the Anglo-Japanese Commercial Treaty, which was a complement to the military treaty, but one of the clauses in that treaty was re, um, reciprocal rights of entry, residency and land acquisition, i.e. in Australia and Japan. And of course, Hughes, who was a race fanatic, would have none of that. That would have imperiled white Australia. So one of his top concerns when he went to London was just that, the, um, the, what he thought was the disproportionate influence of an Asiatic nation at the centre of the empire. And the British were saying to Hughes, look, you know, we need these people. We need this nation, the Japanese nation. You must do nothing to offend them, etc., etc." So again, he was feeling great pressure to make concessions that would have weakened the white Australia policy. And I think what happened, and I argue this, I think with quite a bit of evidence um, in the book, is that he became convinced that conscription i.e. the last fighting to the last the last Australian man and the last Australian shilling was a racial necessity for Australia. Um, so that's the answer. I mean, there were I could mention other books, but I, I've just given you the one the one book that, that really does focus <clears throat> on on this uh, this trip to this trip of his to um, to to Britain um, and the backroom, all of the backroom talk and all the backroom concerns about Japan. I mean, when Hughes was barnstorming, you know, the town halls of England and Scotland and making fabulous speeches that um, really, really stirred the nation, he had to talk about Germany, and he was very happy to talk about Germany because he was one of one of the one of the foremost advocates of a war to the bitter end against Germany. But behind the scenes, the the worry about Japan from an Australian point of view was an absolutely major worry. And he wrote home to his um, acting prime minister, the deputy, 
um, the, sorry, the, the Defence Minister, George Pearce, and set this out. And he said, all our fears have been confirmed. You know, the, the Japanese are, are pressing for the undoing of white Australia. They are, they, are, they are, at the end of the war, going to grab the Pacific Islands and we'll have them on our, you know, we'll have them sort of looking over our back fence. They'll be so close. All, all sorts of anxieties like that are, are, um, are concerning him. So, the, so really what I'm doing from beginning to end is following through this very powerful thread, as I said, of, on the one hand, um, fear of Japan, and on the other hand, distrust of Britain. Um, it's, it's. Um, I mean, this, the dilemma for Australia was unavoidable dependence on Britain and uncertain reliability, um, and and uh, you know, thereby hangs a tail. I think. Yes, and it's important to point out that Australia didn't have um, its own defence forces that were um, supposed to be deployed overseas. They had a home uh, defence force um, and there was compulsory service for that, but certainly not um, anywhere near the uh, type of defence force that Britain had. And uh, as you say... Um, Britain become became less and less reliable in terms of um, mm. coming to the aid of Australia um, to defend them. And obviously yeah. their deep alliance with Japan um, yeah, just yeah. goes to show that they perhaps thought that there are times when perhaps Japan can fill in when Britain is unable to or doesn't yeah. want to. Yes, that was one of the great concerns that... And, and this, that, that was a concern long before the war began, that in the event that, a, that Britain... that it, it mightn't just be, you know, um, deliberate desertion or anything, but in the event that Britain, for example, is tied up in a war against the Russians in India or something, a war for the very heart of the empire, then Australia simply might be... or might have to be abandoned. And one of the... You, you mentioned the sort of national orientation of defence thinking and for, with respect to the Army and the Navy. That's spot on. A really important thread in the story is the way that successive Australian governments in the 1900s, i.e. before the war, develop or become very committed to the idea of, a, of a, an army for national defence, not for imperial adventures, and a navy for national defence, not for imperial deven- um, adventures. And it's only around about 1910 that they roll over, that, they re- that it's the, labor, the Fisher Labor government realises that... Um, that to tie up their security, they are going to have to do what the British have been pressing them to do for years, and that is commit to the preparation for a world war. Um, commit, in other words, not to primarily a national defence, but to being some part of um, um, an, an imperial engagement, pro- probably in in Europe. But as we know, it began in it began in Gallipoli, and then ended up in Europe. Yes. And um, Peter, just we've got um, a minute or so left, but I just want to raise the Treaty of um, Versailles and the Peace Conference Mm. because um, Billy Hughes went to that conference and, you know, threw his weight around a bit in terms of Australia's contribution because it was significant in terms of um, per capita and, and, you know, the size of our population. What um, Mm. happened there in terms of that um, jockeying for influence and also um, the pushing out of the Japanese. Well, Hughes went along to um, Hughes went along to the uh, the peace conference at Versailles, committed to um, a brutal peace, um, 
and, and with no concessions whatsoever to the rebuilding of of Germany, um, the idea his idea was the isolation of Germany, the, that they would establish imperial trade blocks, um, that they would they would seize um, as much of German territory and um, resources as they possibly could. Um, he was committed to ensuring that the Japanese, he had to make concessions on this front, but he was committed to ensuring that the Japanese didn't get hold of any um, German possessions south of the equator, and he was successful on that front. Um, the J Japanese had also put up to the, um, to the conference a thing called the Racial Equality Clause, thinking, being very hopeful that given their commitment to the cause, um, the fact that they hadn't... Um, gone over to Germany, as Hughes suspected they would, um, and that they'd been um, very good allies, um, thinking that it would probably get through and that, the, that part of the covenant of the new League of Nations would be indeed a racial equality clause. Well, Hughes um, led the fight against that, and it was, um, in the end, defeated, and the, and the Japanese were... Um, 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 pr pretty unhappy with that outcome. They thought it was terribly, terribly un unjust. Indeed. And when he got back, sorry, so Peter. I'm going to have yep. to to cut you off. I'm really sorry because no it's um so so interesting and uh, and I'm really hoping that people can engage with this topic more deeply by um, looking into it uh, by reading your book. And I really. Thanks. I commend you for um, for raising something which isn't really in our public memory and discussion of of the Great War. And um, yeah, congratulations on some really important research. Thanks very much, Amy. Much appreciated. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.